Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Dr. Dominic Hausmer, Dean of the College of Science and Engineering at Oral Roberts University, giving a talk entitled Science and the Wisdom of God, How the Study of Nature Unveils an Incredible Ingenuity that Underlies Our Evolving Universe. Sponsored by the Engineering Dual Degree Program at Franciscan University of Steubenville. I put together a series of images and text so that I can share some of our recent thinking in this field of science and faith and the role that the field of engineering might play in this dialogue that's been going on. And these are just some beginning thoughts. Um, You're not going to see a a, a well uh, logically reasoned out uh, argument here. It's, it's just kind of, I'll be honest, it's kind of a jumble of thoughts that uh, we've been bouncing back and forth. But I hope that it will spark some ideas in your mind, and I look forward to hear your thinking about these topics and get your feedback. And so there will be opportunities, especially from the three formal responders, but also with a Q&A period after that, to, uh, to see what you think, because the Holy Spirit works in community, right? We're, we're all part of a body, and the body has different parts, and everybody thinks a little differently. And so have an expectancy of insight during this seminar that uh, the Lord might have you share something uh, at the end, or, or you know, even later on, and, and uh, shoot me an email if you think of something later on. I've also got a one-page, uh, really short survey at the end that uh, you'll have an opportunity to do a quick uh, multiple-choice assessment of this seminar, and then a couple of optional questions at the end if you want to write something and give some feedback. I do use uh, this survey to try to improve uh, future talks. As an example, I went up to Rejoice Christian High School in Owasso, Oklahoma, just north of Tulsa, and gave a talk a couple weeks ago, and... Uh, you know, <laughs> You always try to, to gauge how you should approach an audience. This was uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers at a Christian facility, and I, I thought, you know, this is Tulsa. They're probably, you know, tired of hearing televangelists give pep talks and get really emotional with them. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to be very matter-of-fact, very scientific, just very upfront. Here's the evidence. Um, these are the different positions in science and faith that Christians take, and and uh, the comments that I got back on the survey were, uh, you should be more energetic. <laughs> Why don't you have a little enthusiasm? <laughs> so, one was, uh, I fell asleep, so, oh, 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 dot, 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 do better next time. <laughs> so if I'm a little energetic, a little enthusiastic, please, <laughs> you'll understand. So this is a picture from the Astronomy Picture of the Day website from NASA. uh, You probably recognize the Eagle Nebula. O Lord my God, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, how great thou art. This is where stars are born. We're looking back in time at the Eagle Nebulae, and we see the pushes and pulls, the forces within nature that are balanced just perfectly in order to produce stars. Now, stars are critical because of That's where we bake up all the chemical elements of our periodic table, right? I call those the Legos of life because they work just like Legos. They bond together with just the right force strengths to allow the machinery of life to be conducted. And then they break apart when they need to. And I immediately thought of Legos and I thought, you know, Legos were not, did not come about by accident. They were ingeniously engineered by some very rich Danish engineers. I'm not sure who they were, but they're very rich now. And oh, but they figured out the perfect interference fit so that little hands 
and little arms could pull apart those Lego blocks and push them back together and create new things. And what a wonderful toy. And you can tell the, the ingenuity and the care and the engineering that went into it. One, one year for Christmas, I, I, I bought Mega Blocks instead of Legos. And uh, uh, just the plastic wasn't as good, the, the fit wasn't as nice, and it really was not worth it. A little sa saving of the cost. But this is the kind of thing that I think demonstrates the ingenuity of God. Let's start uh, by talking about science and faith here. Or first, the agenda. We'll give an introduction to science and faith. I'm going to introduce quickly the, the center that I direct now, uh, the Center for Faith and Learning at Oral Roberts University. Talk about a grant that we've won just last year. It's a three-year, $160,000 grant to facilitate science and faith talks within our Christian community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, from the BioLogos Foundation, who is sponsoring this uh, talk partially, in addition to some... Uh, a grateful uh, sponsorship by uh, your own university. Thank you very much for that. Uh, the idea that God might be thought of as a process engineer, and uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. We'll look at a case study dealing with the human genome. Look at something called affordance-based reverse engineering. Relational design theory. And finally, if this might have some contribution to the, the work in theology, known as theodicy, which is to give an answer for God in the face of evil, pain, and suffering in the world. So, do you ever read the comics on Sunday? I hope you, I hope you do. That's one of life's great pleasures, you know. And uh, this one was just a couple weeks ago. You know, the, the, the leaves are changing, and the, they're beautiful on the trees. And this little girl says, Are there eight zillion, kafillion, kadillion, kajillion leaves in the whole world, Mom? Sure, Lizzie, why not? The leaves sure are pretty now, huh, Mom? I know why, do you? So, the uh, mature, dominant adult says, Sure, all spring and summer the leaves make food for the tree until it gets too cold. Then the, the, the tree goes to sleep and doesn't need this food, so it cuts off nourishment to the leaves. As the leaves die, a chemical change in them produces the colors, and the color varies according to the species of the tree. The little girl, you got to give her credit for the, having patience to suffer through that long scientific explanation. But she says, oh, Grandma says God paints them one by one. <laughs> and if you can't see the look on her face, it's, uh, <laughs> it's priceless. So which explanation is correct? Perhaps both, huh? My thought was, they are beautiful, even though they're not perhaps painted the way we as human beings paint something. They are made beautiful, but not just to look at. An engineer looks at a leaf and sees a beautiful energy conversion device, taking the energy from the sun through chlorophyll, bringing it to the nourishment, uh, to be nourishment for the tree, into um, uh, more, more efficient than any solar panel that we could devise, uh, incredible ingenuity. And that's beautiful to an engineer. But uh, the point that I'd like to bring out with young people and with this kind of a comic is it's, it's not either or, right? It's, it's not science or faith, uh, but it's both and because we have this dual revelation and God expects us to investigate his creation and get to know him through his, what he has made as well as his revelation in scripture. So the Center for Faith and Learning has the mission to engage and inspire truth seekers in the discovery and realization of meaning, value, and purpose in nature and human culture and to facilitate accurate Christian thinking and appropriate stewardship of these natural and creative resources. And it's a pleasure to be here at a faith-based university um, where value, meaning, purpose, 
wisdom, all of these qualities are still uh, taught, still valued, and still appreciated at the higher education level. And this is what we're hoping to do through the Center for Faith and Learning, is help students and faculty integrate their academic area, whatever that academic area is, with their Christian worldview. We do that through um, fostering interdisciplinary research, facilitating dialogue with others. We want students and faculty to publish on, you know, how do you hear God's voice in mathematics or biology or nursing or business, any of these areas. We believe, uh, as part of our founding vision, that God spoke to Oral Roberts and said, build me a university, build it on my authority and on the Holy Spirit. Raise up your students to hear my voice. And so that's in the context of a university education. So what does it mean to hear God's voice in engineering? This is what we're trying to work out. So that we can better articulate our distinctive and serve, I also hope to serve as a clearinghouse for, for ideas in this area to all the different departments and engage, equip faculty to engage students to hear God's voice in their area. We used to, I used to hear when I went to ORU first in 1992 yeah, Christian young people can come here, get their learning, but keep their burning. Like, like you, it was hard to have both. You couldn't really, you had to work at it to keep both. Well, I want to change that. I say let your learning fuel your burning. Right? So, one of the things that I pointed out to uh, the students recently was this Craig, William Lane Craig, Alex Rosenberg debate at the Purdue Elliott Hall of Music where I uh, used to be my old stomping grounds in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, actually went and sat and camped out and got tickets to Jefferson Starship in the front row of the Elliott Hall of Music <laughs> one year. But uh, I would have rather been there for this debate. I didn't make the debate, but uh, I, I watched it online afterwards. The topic of this debate, um, you probably know William Lane Craig is a Christian uh, apologist, and Alex Rosenberg is a philosophy professor at Duke, very prestigious philosophy professor. And, an atheist, and so they were debating, is faith in God reasonable? Not a particular scientific question, right? Here's William Lane Craig, Alex Rosenberg. 4,200 people attended. Many attended on the, via uh, streaming on the internet from all over the world. And uh, William Lane Craig actually did a really good job of presenting eight reasons why belief in God is reasonable. He said, theism is the best explanation for why anything at all exists, for the origin of the universe, I like this. This was a new one. I think he took uh, Alex Rosenberg by surprise. The applicability of mathematics in describing the physical world. The fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. Intentional states of consciousness. Objective moral values and duties. The historical data concerning the person of Jesus Christ and how God can be personally known and experienced today. But here's the point. They had like 20 minutes for their opening statements 12 minutes for a rebuttal and 8 minutes for a rebuttal to the rebuttal. So they had very limited time. They had to use it carefully. And you know what they spent most of their time talking about? Science. Most of their valuable and limited time was spent talking about issues of science. We live in a science-saturated society where scientists are regarded as the most knowledgeable and most credible people in the world. In case you're wondering, uh, I, I, didn't, I was surprised by this because there was a panel of six academic judges and uh, they, they voted, Craig won the debate four to two. This is at Purdue, you know. Uh, the audience voted, Craig won the debate 1390 to 303. Um, internet voting also overwhelmingly thought that Craig won. But the point is, is, if we as Christians are to be relevant in our society, we cannot ignore issues of science and faith. This is part of our calling at a Christian or a Catholic university. And we are well equipped and anointed to address these issues. We need to take the lead in this discussion. We have been fortunate enough to win a three-year, $160,000 grant from the BioLogos Foundation on science and faith. And so we're excited about our opportunity to bring some deeper understanding of these issues to the church. It's what's called a translation grant, translating knowledge from the academy to the church. And I, I think I want to show you a couple of other of the grantees that also won awards. 
You'd probably be interested, I know Alex, you're going to be interested in one of these. Um, so I'm going to go to the BioLogos website. Here are the other grantees. They are all around the world. There's 37 different projects, uh, some in Europe, one in Hawaii, and many in the United States. I don't know if you can read it, but uh, this one here at Concordia University, Dr. Paul Allen, the title is Creatures of God, an Evangelical Catholic Dialogue on Sin, Evolution, and Human Nature. Another one. At Providence College, which is a Dominican uh, university, right? Disputed Questions in Evolutionary Creation, Thomistic Responses for the Catholic Faithful and Other Curious Minds. Father Nicanor Austriaco, Father James Brent, Brother Thomas Davenport, and Father John Baptist Koo. I got to meet several of these guys at the summer workshop, the summer BioLogos workshop. I can tell you John Baptist Koo is an excellent sand volleyball player. <laughs> and then one more uh, at St. Louis University. I think I just passed it. Yeah, St. Louis University, Dr. Craig Boyd, Evolutionary Creation and Christian Ethics. So uh, we're excited to see the work that's going to be coming out of all of these projects. And uh, let's go back to the presentation. Who is BioLogos? Have you ever heard? Uh, this is an organization that Francis Collins started, the director of the NIH, uh, was, who was the um, leader of the Human Genome Project. It's a community of evangelical Christians committed to exploring the compatibility of evolutionary creation and biblical faith, guided by the truth that all things hold together in Christ. They, they value gracious dialogue and are attempting to bring about what they call a cultural and spiritual reconciliation between you know, these fields of science and faith. Um, it's the second point there that made some of the folks at ORU a little nervous when we won this grant. And we've been, it's been good because we've been talking about things that we should have been talking about a long time ago, namely evolution how, and how do we fit the, the evidence for, for evolution coming out of uh, bio, biology these days with our understanding of scripture and our faith. Um, so I'm not going to get into the uh, big long story of what's going on at ORU with regard to this, but you can know that we are, we're currently wrestling with this and moving forward with this grant, but uh, doing so in a very cautious way. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I was excited to come here and, and hear your perspective on it. It's always good to hear uh, from other parts of the body on these issues. We did uh, request that they put a disclaimer on their website where they posted our um, summary of our project. It says, the views and opinions expressed by the project leaders in their work do not necessarily reflect the views of BioLogos, nor does participation in this project entail that the project leaders or their institutions necessarily share the views and opinions expressed by BioLogos. Now, the purpose of the grant is to explore effective means of helping Christians appreciate the conclusions of mainstream science while also respecting their own theological tradition. To address means of constructively engaging Christian communities on matters that concern them about the compatibility of evolution and theology. However, this does not mean that all grantees must be ardent supporters of theistic evolution. And I, I was careful to make this point with our faculty and administration. This doesn't mean that we're adopting the views of BioLogos. We're investigating. And one of the key things that troubles a lot of Christians in the Bible Belt, where Tulsa, Oklahoma is located, is what about the Old Testament? What about Genesis? What are you going to do with Adam and Eve? And so it's good to bring up scholars like um, John Walton at Wheaton, who's been teaching, who's also one of the grantees, and we've been stealing some of his material to help it with our project. Um, you know, as a theologian, you've got to look at the author's intent to draw the meaning out of the text. Remember that the Bible was written for us, 
but not necessarily to us, right? It was written to the original Hebrews at that time period. So the message is culture-bound, but it transcends culture. But we have to remember that culture is involved in interpretation. There was probably a pretty high context involved with the Genesis account. In other words, the writer was understanding that his readers had common knowledge that he had about all the things he was writing about. So that's a high context. Uh, you understand my first few slides with the comics because you know about comics. Everybody knows about comics in our modern day and age. But an ancient Hebrew would not have that understanding of comic strips. You also have to look at the, gen the genre of this writing. It's, there are poetic elements, there are symbolic elements, and uh, this is an important consideration in drawing out the meaning. It's perhaps possible that God was accommodating his truth to this people who had absolutely no idea about scientific concepts. It was a pre-scientific culture. And so um, accommodation is another concept that we need to keep in mind when we, think, when we look at Genesis. And remember that we wrestle with these two dual revelations that both involve man's interpretations. So if science conflicts with theology, we, we actually really should not get too upset because these are two man's interpretations conflicting. That doesn't necessarily mean that the facts about nature and the facts about God conflict. In fact, it's an opportunity to learn more because somewhere we know there's a wrong interpretation if we see that conflict. So there's a lot to be gained, even though there is the potential for conflict as well. This dialogue between science and religion asks whether, in what ways, and to what extent these partners can learn from each other, says Alistair McGrath in his book, The Introduction to Science and Religion. Fortunately, we have uh, a chapter of the American Scientific Affiliation on campus, and I, I love their new logo. It's, a, it's an arrow coming down from above and an arrow coming in from the side and colliding. It's like science and theology. Bam! I, I joke with uh, in the locker room at, at, at uh, the aerobic center at Oral Roberts University with my theologian friends. Uh, they're old enough to remember the old commercial, the old Reese's peanut butter cup commercial where you have the guy coming with the chocolate and the other guy coming with the peanut butter and they hit each other. Ah, oh, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter. It's like, oh, you got your theology in my science. Well, you got your science all over my theology. <laughs> hey, it actually is not too bad if you taste it. <laughs> we got interested in this work. Uh, for one reason, there's some people writing on this topic. David Kinneman is the uh, president of the Barna Group, which does, conducts polls dealing with uh, spiritual yeah. issues. And he's recently written a book called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. And there's an entire section in here about science. And he did a study, uh, took some data uh, from Christians, young Christians from 18 to 29-year-olds who have a Christian background. And 52% either agreed or strongly agreed that Christians are too confident that they know all the answers. That's interesting, huh? 41% agree that churches are out of step with the scientific world we live in. 34% agree that Christianity is anti-science. 34% are turned off by the creation versus evolution debate. And I'm thinking perhaps dialogue would be better instead of generating so much heat with a debate. That it makes complex things too simple, that it's anti-intellectual, and there's a heart-rending testimony by a young kid named Mike who said he was studying evolution in uh, high school. He was learning about evolution in high school for the first time. And he said, it, it felt like my first window into the real world. And he said this, quote, I knew from church that I couldn't believe in both science and God. So that was it. I didn't believe in God anymore. Now, I'm not putting the blame on the church. Certainly, the blame for rejecting the truth falls squarely on Mike's shoulders. 
But the funny thing about a fallen world is there's a lot of blame to go around, right? And maybe the church can do better. Fifty-two percent of youth group teens aspire to science-related careers. That's careers in medical, health-related professions, engineering, science, technology, veterinary medicine. And how many youth group leaders, youth group pastors addressed science issues in the last year? One percent. This excited us about the opportunity to go out and help pastors in this area. So we're we're preparing to conduct a pastor's workshop in Tulsa to... uh, get their feedback on this because they're nervous about it, you know, and, and to give a, an example presentation to them and let them help us craft what would be appropriate for their congregations. So our main theme for our project with this BioLogos uh, grant is really however human beings arose, by whatever method they arose. We may not ever know exactly how they came about exactly, but there's fabulous engineering there. And so that's one of our, our key points is this ingenuity, appreciating this ingenuity behind our cosmos. So we want to give an introduction to science and faith. Talk about how do we interpret the Bible's creation accounts, but not only that, how do we interpret uh, nature as well, findings in nature? What are the limitations of the scientific method? Because it can't teach us everything we need to know. Uh, what's a framework for considering science within theology? Look at natural law and fine-tuning. I hate that word, fine-tuning. It reminds me of, there's a, there are, there's a few older people in here. Remember the old television sets that had the fine-tuning knob? Mm-hmm. You had to keep playing with it, that in the vertical hold, right? And finally you can get the picture to come in. I don't think this is like that. I think the better word is engineered. Forethought, planned out, engineered. And that's what I think we see in the star formation with the chemical elements and, and the kinds of engineering we see in the living cell. Now, as you're going to see, and, and I'm going to address these issues of bad design or... or uh, uh, the evil, pain, and suffering that results in, by, from some of uh, the natural things that we see. But I'll talk about that in a bit. Um, historical and literary perspectives. And then the idea that science is an act of worship. See, God is in the business of revealing truth. We see in Romans 1.20, which is the, actually this, the set of verses that I uh, did my Master's of Biblical Literature on. I uh, just finished that in May. And it was really fun. Uh, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that the men are without excuse. Now, Mats Wahlberg is a professor in Sweden at a secular university who's been studying uh, natural theology. And he's just recently written a book called Reshaping Natural Theology. Are you familiar with, with this book? Uh, seeing nature as creation. He argues that rather than inferring the existence of God, it's not an inference, it's a direct perception. Humans perceive intentionality and intelligence when they observe natural systems. He relates it in the same way as to the problem of other minds, other minds, other people's brains that you're able to perceive that there exist other minds besides your own. There's no way you can prove that. That's not something you can prove scientifically. But you perceive it directly. I would go even a step further and say that there, I think that we perceive a specific kind of intelligence in nature. I would argue that we perceive engineering expertise, but not only engineering expertise, exquisite engineering expertise. Now, you might think, well, uh, you've got to study engineering in order to be able to uh, perceive that kind of thing, right? Well, not really. We were born, uh, somebody was talking recently about soaking in information like a sponge. Children are able to just perceive their environment and begin to apprehend it almost immediately. Before too long, if you ever had the joy of putting your child down among a bunch of pots and pans and letting them discover that they can control 
the noises and they start to play and they just beam because they begin to experience the control that they can have over their environment. Before long, they're solving the inverted pendulum problem, right? This is incredible. That's what walking is. It's the inverted pendulum problem. They can, all the control systems that they're able to uh, apprehend within their own being and understand how they work and uh, solve this problem is incredible. So this is a, an actually a form of reverse engineering. They're investigating their envir- environment and their own bodies and figuring out how they work. Now, some folks have objected to the idea of God as engineer. I reviewed this book by John Polkinghorne uh, for the ASA journal, Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith, and uh, with some fear and trepidation because John Polkinghorne is a pretty famous theologian and scientist, but he claimed that God is never spoken of as a designer in the Bible. It's a direct quote from this book. And uh, I thought, hmm, not sure that's right. I saw several places, and I'm going to talk about some of them here in a second, where I believe it is referring to God as an engineer, in fact, a process engineer. Uh, Cardinal Christoph Schomborn uh, wrote the book Chance or Purpose, and he argues that God is not a divine engineer or some kind of omniscient technician who only makes and builds perfect devices and perfect things. Uh, and, and I will agree with him on that because there's a difference between an engineer and a technician. The technician is involved in building things. The engineer is the one who devises, uses his creativity and, and his intelligence and his wisdom to devise the um, solution to some problem and then maybe through other means have it implemented through, through technicians perhaps but have it accomplish the purposes that he sees fit. So I want to make a distinction between the, the idea that an engineer builds things. Rather, it's the engineer who devises the solution to the problem. And I think of 2 Samuel 14, 14, where the wise woman of Tekoa is, uh, is uh, adopted by Joab to confront David about his sin of not reconciling with his son Absalom. And the wise woman of Tekoa actually does this, which is, when you think about it, is quite scary in a patriarchal society to, for a woman to confront the king about his sin. So when, he, when she does that, you think, oh my gosh, she just did that? She better have something good to follow it up with. But you know what? She does. 2 Samuel 14, 14 is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. It says, she says to the king, like water that is poured out on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we all must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, he devises ways so that those who have been banished may not remain estranged from him. God is a problem solver. He's a divisor of solutions. I think he's an engineer. Now, there's somebody, a famous person, Dr. Box, I think, once said, all models are wrong. Some are useful, right? <laughs> so I'm sure this model of God is wrong, but perhaps it's useful. There was an article by David L. Wilcox in the American Scientific Affiliation way back in 1987. I found this article in preparing for this last summer's talk that I gave at the ASA meeting up at Belmont University in Nashville. And then I ran into David Wilcox in the uh, elevator. I didn't even know he was still attending the meetings, but I had a great talk with him about his paper, Three Models of Making, Prime Mover, Craftsman, and King, Alternate Theistic Frameworks for Teaching Origins. And he says, the divine craftsman is not the God of scriptures because he sees a craftsman as somebody who builds something and then is hands off. And then, then it's used and the original craftsman has no more input, no more interaction with it. Well, that's deism, of course, and that's not the God of Scripture. But a process engineer is somebody who's involved all along the way. There's a lot of petrochemical industry in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a lot of process engineers work in the petrochemical industry where they're involved in the process of refining something. 
whether it's uh, refining an oil or gasoline or, or some product like that. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that God throughout the Old Testament in many different places is referred to as one who refines his people in the furnace of affliction. I'm just going to read uh, very briefly about a half a page from my master's thesis. Oh, there it is. This concept, one of a process engineer, is well illustrated in one of the most commonly used metaphors in the Bible. When God refers to the slavery of Egypt as a furnace used to refine his people, 1 Kings 8:51. Even at this in this ancient time in history, it was common knowledge that precious metals could be refined through extreme heat so that the impurities or dross could be removed. The psalmist sings of his people being tested by God and refined like silver facing much adversity before being brought to a place of abundance, Psalm 66, 10 to 12. But the wicked God discards like dross, Psalm 119, 119. Proverbs 17, 3 warns, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart, indicating that God may use adversity to test and refine people's hearts. Isaiah writes similarly regarding God's enemies, where God says, my enemies, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities, Isaiah 1, 24 to 25. And later God says regarding his people, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction, Isaiah 48, 10. There's another uh, researcher who communicates with very few words, mostly pictures, although he gives some captions. His name is Gary Larson. God, as a kid, tries to make a chicken in the lab. I actually blew up something in the lab one time, and I uh, looked about like that. But, you know, this gets me thinking. Uh, this, is a, this is a real question. Is God a poor engineer? I mean, think about Genesis 6, 5. God looked down on the earth and saw mankind, and he saw that the heart of man was only towards wickedness all the time. And he regretted that he had made man. That's a hard scripture. How do we deal with that? Well... There's some important theological lessons we learn from the story of Noah and the flood. You know, God is sovereign. Uh, God is serious about sin. God is able to do what he wants with his creation. He's in charge. And what about the value, the great value of even one person have a, having a relationship with their maker? Or the redemption uh, that one person can bring. The other thing we want to think about in terms of pain and suffering in the world and evil is, is it possible that these events might afford human beings something that they wouldn't otherwise have because we experience in them? Uh, Richard Swinburne, a philosopher of religion at Oxford University, writes in his book, The Existence of God, that these kinds of events, like natural evil, like this flood in, in Japan, or moral evil, like the perpetration of these horrible events in 9-11 prevent significant opportunities for people to show love, compassion, and kindness that they would not otherwise have if this kind of evil did not exist. So there's opportunities to grow strong and useful, to grow humble, to learn truth. There's something about the education of human beings that appears to perhaps require these kinds of events so that it was St. Augustine, I think, who said God thought it better to draw good out of evil rather than that no evil would exist at all. And you see places in Scripture where God takes something that was intended for evil 
and turns it around. He's able to turn around and cause it to work for good. Did you know that's an actually an engineering principle that's documented? I don't know if there's any engineers in here who have ever heard of the TRIZ. Uh, it's a, actually a Russian problem-solving methodology, uh, TRIZ. It's not, I don't know what the Russian name of it is, but um, one of the uh, methods that's listed there is making the devil work for you. Right? My dad used to say that. He was an inventor, and when something would go wrong with one of his inventions, he would say, hmm, let's see if we can make the devil work for us here. And he'd have an idea on how to cause it to work for good. Joseph said that about his brothers. You meant this for evil, but God has caused it to work for good. I couldn't find a good word for that when I was writing my master's thesis, so I invented a word. It's kind of neat when you write a thesis, you can do stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a beneficial reversal of things. So I called it the beneversal. God is the master of the beneversal. In fact, this entire universe is like a, a big beneversal. Now, there's others who have different ideas. Uh, John Avis is an evolutionary biologist at uh, California Irvine. And he wrote a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences entitled Footprints, not fingerprints, Footprints of Nonsentient Design. In case you're wondering, nonsentient means not having the power of perception, not conscious, not characterized by sensation or consciousness inside the human genome. You probably can tell what he's getting at here. In fact, his book makes it a little clearer. Inside the human genome, a case for non-intelligent design. He sees uh, problems in the genome in a way that he doesn't think could, there could be any conscious design or engineer behind it. And this is an important um, point that we want to address. He says, both a creator God and natural selection are powerful shaping forces that might be expected to have engineered beautiful functionality and efficiency into complex biological features such as the human genome. The much greater challenge for proponents of ID and for scientists alike is to explain complex biological traits that operate inefficiently or even malfunction overtly. And as you know, there's a long list of diseases and birth defects and pain and suffering that can occur when things go wrong in the human genome. So on closer inspection, the human genome itself becomes a prime example of a highly complex trait with serious molecular shortcomings. He talks about the malfunctioning, the wastefulness, and the klutzy or kludgy kind of designs he sees in the human genome. Um, I'm going to skip over some of this, um, but just to uh, tell you what he says here, he says, actually, this is good for religion because now God's no longer responsible for uh, these kinds of birth defects, disabilities, and, and uh, pain and suffering. We can blame it on evolution. But this is where I ask, what is wrong with this picture? You probably have already figured it out. Um, can evolution be the salvation for theology? This is what John Avis is, is suggesting. Um, he says, this made me think of this cartoon. Listen, just because he's CEO of the, uh, of the universe doesn't mean he should be held responsible for every so-called act of God. This is God's spokesperson. Well, I was really pleased to see um, Murray and Sloss, a uh, Christian philosopher and a Christian biologist, respond to him. And the PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, published their response. Uh, he airs on three counts, but I'll, I'll just give you the last one here. Evolution does not emancipate religion from the shackles of theodicy, positing that God delegated the task of generating life to insentient evolution merely ushers in an explanatory regress. God's not off the hook. Ultimately, he's responsible if he's God, right? Then I saw Avis responded to Murray and Sloss. And this was the most exciting point of all, especially if you're a theologian here, which if you're not a professional theologian, you're an amateur theologian, so this is for everybody. I'll, I'll cut to the last one here. It's time for theologians to step up to the plate and perhaps help us to understand the philosophical implications of this marvelous but faulty genome. 
That is significant. Here's an evolutionary biologist in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences inviting theologians to help us understand what's going on here. Do you need an engraved invitation? <laughs> Let's respond. And then what finally did it for me uh, was Philip Ball, a science writer for Nature News, took John Avis's work and wrote a popular article entitled, What a Shoddy Piece of Work is Man? <clears throat> I, I couldn't believe it. My jaw just about dropped. Because as an engineer, I, I perceive the kinds of engineering we see in a human being as fabulous. We can't even begin to approach it with the kinds of things that humans engineer. And that's the only thing we have to compare it to. That's the only, there's only one kind of engineering uh, that we're sure about, and that's human engineering. So these natural systems, when they're so much, so fabulous in the way that they work, even though there appear to be problems at times, how do you explain this? Well, we wrote an article called Affordance-Based Reverse Engineering of Natural Systems with Possible Corruption. Now, here's, here's the thing. When you look at a system, you dissect it, and you try to figure out how it works, that's, that's reverse engineering, right? But whatever it is you're dissecting, you always have to ask the question, what is the history of the specimen? Has it undergone some wear and tear, some damage, some corruption in its history. And you have to try to, if it has, you have to try to tease that apart from the original design. And now this is the, this is the part that gets very interesting, is how much of what we see in human beings was part of the original design, and how much of it is part of corruption that's occurred in the history of mankind. I think Taking a reverse engineering approach to these kinds of natural systems is a very rich kind of activity that can lead to, to some insights. Uh, Ken Weed's a professor of chemistry at ORU's helped us with this along with some students and we presented this at the Christian Engineering Education Conference at Trinity Western University in June of 2011. <laughs> Perhaps this is not improper use of the shopping mall information booth. If God is all-knowing, all-good, and all-powerful, why does he allow evil? She looks a little stunned. So, as I mentioned, these are some of the questions that you ask when you conduct reverse engineering. How does a system work? How was it formed? How does it relate to other systems? What is its function and purpose? Has it experienced damage or corruption from its initial state? And... Is it possible that that damage or corruption has affected its functionality or affordances? Now, affordances can be positive or negative. And you have to have enough information to understand whether an affordance, I'm using the word affordance, affordance I didn't define it. An affordance is simply something that is afforded to or provided to an end user of a system. The chair you're sitting in affords sitting. It also affords stackability. Uh, a vacuum cleaner affords sucking up dirt. Now, the, a vacuum cleaner is also thought to have a negative affordance, which is that it's noisy, right? But if you're trying to put a baby to sleep, that can actually be a positive affordance, can't it? It depends on your information, on your purpose. This is a tricky business, is determining affordances. Um, and how damage to a system or corruption in a system might have affected those affordances. It seems as though pain and suffering in our world could provide us with the affordance of knowing a relationship or obtaining a vital relationship with our maker. It, it's a key, it appears to be a key part of that. And I'm going to have to pick and choose my next final slides because I've got about 20 left, I think, and I probably should break pretty soon here and let my responders respond. So let me um, jump through some of these. The Antikythera mechanism is a classic example of reverse engineering. Anybody ever heard of this? It was found in the sea off of an island off Greece, just a block of encrusted, coral encrusted, they didn't know what it was, 
but they were able to eventually, over a hundred year period, reverse engineer this. They discovered that it was probably the first analog computer and they were able to build a model of it. 28 interlocking spur gears, even some planetary gears, which allowed it to predict the motion of the heavens. And so you learn things through these kinds of reverse engineering process that per perhaps can be helpful in reverse engineering natural systems. Um, for example, one of the things that Joe Marchant in her book, Decoding the Heavens, which documents this reverse engineering process said, is that there were letters engraved on the casing, Greek letters engraved on the out outer casing of this uh, device when they found it, and they were of such high quality that they know that they could not have been done by a common laborer, but they must have been engraved by a very skilled craftsman. Now there you're drawing conclusions about the original engineer just by looking at and di dissecting the specimen that was made by that engineer. So you begin to see how this might help with natural systems. This um, model of the big picture of design lends itself to what um, Jonathan Meyer has called relational design theory. This big picture of design, in his case, involves the designer, the artifact that has been designed, and then the user. And he looks at affordances and how they capture, capture important interactions and interrelations between these three entities, the designer, the artifact, and the user. In our work, we introduce the fourth entity, that is the investigator, the reverse engineer. These, this person also has an interesting relationship uh, with, with all of these uh, other entities. Forensic reverse engineering is how, things, how and why things break, engineered systems break. Um, the, the B-27 superfortress, uh, one of them crashed off the coast of Alaska during World War II, and the Russians uh, picked it up and reverse engineered it part by part and developed their Tu-4 Russian bomber. The Americans didn't even know about this until the TU-4 flew into the uh, Paris Air Show in 1947. <laughs> and the Americans said, wow, that looks just like ours. And uh, finally, when, when all of this came out, after uh, we, we were able to uh, get some of the documents coming out of Russia in the last 10 to 20 years, they realized that the Russians had, had done such a good job of reverse engineering this bomber that the engines overheated and caught fire on the Russian version, just like the American version. <laughs> There's a more recent example that I could get into with a drone that was captured by the Iranians a couple years ago. Um, and they've attempted to reverse engineer this, this uh, drone. In fact, they claim to have done it uh, back last year. Um, here's a picture of it. There's a, pic there's a picture of it that the Iranians have. And uh, they say, our next action will be to reverse engineer the aircraft. In the near future, we will be able to mass produce it. Iranian engineers will soon build an aircraft superior to the American drone using reverse engineering. I'm a little skeptical, but it's, it's one of the reasons is because uh, the makers, uh, Lockheed Martin, en encrypted, en encrypted the software. So it's not easy to, uh, to reverse engineer. And, and that brings up an important point. See, Lockheed Martin suspected that this technology may fall into the wrong hands at some point. So they took measures to ensure that uh, no, no more evil would be propagated if that were the case. All right, think about applying that to human beings. The original engineer perhaps suspected that this technology would fall into the wrong hands. So he took measures to make sure that a minimum amount of evil would be propagated we have to remember in our situation that there is an adversary who's also thrown into the mix there. And I'm, I'm actually thinking about adding a fifth entity to the big picture of design, which is also the adversary who's trying to destroy this original design. I better cut to the conclusion. This goes through the entire uh, case study of not just that drone, but also life in looking at the big picture of design. So I'm just going to have to skip through. I'm sorry.
<coughs> Here's one of my final slides. Have you seen this just in the last couple of weeks? This green hopper appears in, in real time to be there one second and then just poof, by, ma by magic, disappear. And the thing is, he's got this amazing set of legs who, which allow him to propel up to 700 times the acceleration of gravity and get out of there if he needs to, if he's in trouble. I mean, he, my, our son's a, uh, fighter, uh, 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 a pilot in the Marine Corps, and uh, he's gone through all these high-G training. They can, they can handle maybe 10 Gs, but there's this little grasshopper, 700 Gs. And how does he do it? In fact, one of the writers in this work said, you know, these hind legs have to be exactly synchronized. Otherwise, he's going, pew, right? He's spinning, he's spinning. And how are they synchronized? Well, they found spur gears. And this is thought to be the first time that spur gears, like we have been engineering, here's an electron micrograph of it, exist in the uh, grasshopper. And they work beautifully. Um, this is an example of a design isomorph, something that human beings engineered and then later realized, oh, wow, that same thing is, is actually in nature and has been in nature for, for a long time. <laughs> Eden Philpotts in A Shadow Passes says, the universe is full of magical things, patiently waiting for our wits to grow sharper. <laughs> Any uh, science fiction junkies in here? You know Arthur C. Clarke's third law? Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So perhaps what we view as magic in nature, the magic of life, is just God's sufficiently advanced technology. But there's a corollary to Arthur C. Clarke's third law. Is that a good thing or a bad thing you're looking at? It depends on what it is. That's right. Any sufficiently advanced technology may also be confused with malevolence if you don't have enough information. And God has seen fit to limit our information at this point because he desires faith. He desires us to trust him. That's a key part of a love relationship. Any love relationship requires trust and faith. Einstein said, subtle is the Lord, but malicious he is not. Richard Swinburne also points out the affordances of all of the mind-body system. We have brain states, we have memory banks, we have actuators to turn these brain states into body movements and accomplish purposes. This allows us to affect the world, ourselves and others, for good or for ill. This is an incredible set of affordances. And, and it seems to be affording us to have relationships and one key relationship with our maker. These affordances tell of meaning and purpose. Finally, Psalm 119, 71 to 72, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. For this is better than thousands of pieces of gold or silver. And Paul says, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, because the faith you have is growing more and more and the love you have for one another is increasing. We boast about the perseverance of your faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Their love was growing and their faith was growing in the midst of trials and persecutions. Then Paul says something very key. He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. God knows what he's doing. Even when he allows per persecutions and trials, because this is providing evidence to those who need evidence that love and faith will grow even in the midst of this suffering. And finally, I, I promise, this is my last slide. Albert Einstein said, science out without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. But there was somebody else who said something about the blind and the lame. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Perhaps if we invite the blind and the lame to the church, we might have a chance to heal them. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.